Well, we've been in our study in Romans for a while now, and we're coming now to this fourth major section to the letter of Romans, chapters 9 through 11. These chapters are filled with important truth. They are meaty. They're substantial. They're deep. One wrote, Romans 9, 1 through 11, is one of the most fascinating passages in the New Testament, filled with essential and very practical doctrine and focused on Israel and God's chosen people. Throughout church history, this passage has often been greatly misunderstood. Some commentators and preachers all but ignore it. Some treat it like a parenthesis, like, like it has no connection to the letter around it. Some take it that Paul is just expressing his concern for his fellow Jews. Some even make it the crux, the most important part of the whole letter. So from downplaying it to overplaying it, from thinking it has little consequence to thinking it's the major point of the letter, what's lost in all the extremism is that for Paul, this part of the letter flows logically and naturally from Romans 8 and logically and naturally into Romans 12. The truth is, is that Paul is continuing to teach on his main subject of justification by faith. Having just talked about how every believer is adopted by God into his family, having just talked about how God works all things for the good to those whom he has called, having just talked about God's unbreakable chain of salvation in Romans 8, 29, and 30, having just talked about that no one can lay a charge against God's elect, having just talked about how nothing, absolutely nothing, can separate a true believer from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul now takes these truths of Romans 8 and the rest of his letter and applies it to, a, to the standing conundrum of his fellow Jews and their rejection of Christ. See, it's much easier to understand Romans 9 if you understand that Paul is answering this question. Since God is the one who's initiator, since God is the one who's the completer of everyone's salvation, what happened to the Jews? Since salvation is the work of God, why are the Jews, God's chosen people, rejecting Jesus as their Messiah? Has God's word failed? Has God's plan been thwarted? Could, could God not be able to save his people? Has, has God rejected his chosen people? See, by this time already in church history, it would have been very evident that the Gentile converts to Christ were going to far outnumber the Jewish converts to Christ. Because for the most part, Israel and all of her highest religious leaders have rejected Jesus as their Messiah. What is God doing with Israel? Remember Romans 1.16? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
I mean, the gospel is always for everyone, right? For every person, every every ethnicity, every nation, every tribe, every tongue. The gospel is for all people. But you remember how that verse ends. It says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first. And also to the Greek. If it's true that the power of God for salvation is for everyone and for the Jew first, then why have the vast majority of the Jews rejected Christ as their Messiah? What's going on? In chapters 9 through 11, Paul addresses these pressing questions for the church in Rome. This cosmopolitan church of both Jew and Gentile. And he addresses these pressing questions for us. To teach us about the character of our God, about the mercy of our God, about the sovereignty of our God, about the plan of our God. But today, after that rousing introduction, we're not even going to talk about any of those questions today. We're going to get into that in the next sermon. What we're going to do in this sermon is look at these first five verses of Romans chapter 9. And to help us understand what's going on in the background. To help us understand what's going on with Paul's heart. We're going to look at his heart for his kinsmen. I think it's very helpful to keep in mind the bookends of chapter 9 through 11. Because it helps us better understand the meat that's in between there. Chapters 9, 1 through 5, and then chapter 11, 33 through 36 are bookends. Or to go with our meat analogy, right, they're bread. They're the bread and all the meat is in between. I heard a preacher say that the heart of Paul in the beginning of chapter 9 carries all the way through to the doxology of God at the end of chapter 11, where Paul states, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, he goes on. It's important to understand Paul's heart here. It's critically important to understand his heart because it reflects God's heart as we go in to the rest of Romans chapter 9. So if you have your scriptures with me, turn to Romans 9. Follow along as I read. Verses 1 through 5. The scripture says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Father, now we have come to your scriptures to humble ourselves under the teaching and authority of your word. Teach us now and change us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to see three things this morning. First, we're going to see the greatness 
of Paul's grief, verses 1 and 2. Then the greatness of Paul's passion, in verse 3. And then the greatness of the Jews' blessings. Oh, the blessings that God gave to the Jewish people, in verses 4 through 5. Well, the first thing you notice in the greatness of Paul's grief is that this situation with his fellow countrymen is not some intellectual issue for Paul, right? This is not some theological issue for Paul. These questions about his fellow kinsmen cut him deep to his heart. So often the truths of chapter 9 are kind of debated back and forth, kind of like sport, kind of with hands off, you know, distance. It's just a theological exercise. You know, what's your view? You know, what's your take? That is not the heart of Paul. No, the reality of the lostness of his kinsmen was solemn, was heartrending, was great sorrow and serious. It brought him anguish from the heights right, of God's inseparable love as, as Romans chapter 8 comes to an end. Paul then immediately exposes how his heart is broken because of the rejection of his kinsmen, of their Messiah. Now, at first it might seem like, now that's a big switch, right? That's kind of a sudden change. But if you think about it a moment, that swift switch is not unusual at all. When you've tasted the grace of Christ in salvation, you now see more clearly the desperate need of those around you for salvation. It is the very wonder and beauty of God's salvation that brings us to sorrow for the salvation of the lost. It is when you know the love of God so completely that you then know the depth of the anguish for the lost so completely. As we see the amazing heights of God's love for us, as we see the abounding grace and mercy of God in our lives, the sorrowful flip side of that side comes naturally. The reality that there are those who do not love God. There are those who have rejected the very grace and mercy of our God. And yes, that heartache especially flows because of those we know, because of those we love, because our very kinsmen have rejected our Savior. No, the swift switch from the heights of love to sorrow and anguish is actually something every believer knows. For we are so utterly thankful for God's great salvation in our lives, and yet we so yearn deeply for our family, for our friends, for our loved ones, for our kinsmen to know our Christ. So let's look together there at verse 1. In verse 1, Paul makes it triply sure that we understand the reality of his heart. First, he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. What is to follow is not just the truth, but it's the truth 
in Christ. This isn't just his feelings. This is his conviction in Christ. He's calling on Christ as his witness. Jesus himself could attest to the fact of the truth of what Paul is about to say. This is the truth in Christ. Now, that's enough right there, right, to emphasize that what he's about to say is the truth. That's actually more than enough to proclaim one's veracity. But then he says it again, this time in a negative way of saying, he says, I am not lying. Paul is piling on to to make his point. He is now double emphasized that what he's about to say is the truth and not a lie. Then he adds a third witness, finishing off the verse saying, My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. His conscience, you know, his internal integrity in the Lord that is opened up to the very workings of the Holy Spirit in his life bears witness to the truth of what he's about to say. What a triple emphasis of the reality of Paul's heart. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. You see, Israel's rejection of their Messiah weighed so heavily on Paul's heart that he even called on two members of the Trinity to attest to the veracity of the depth of his sorrow and anguish. In verse 1, Paul is purposefully overemphasized that what he is about to say is the truth. Well, what is the truth? Verse 2 tells us the first part of that truth, and that, that Paul has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. The truth is that Paul has great sorrow. Sorrow here is heaviness. Sorrow is grief. Sorrow is pain. This is the word that's used to describe people in mourning. And he's in unceasing anguish. This word translated to anguish is only used one other time in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 6.10. It says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Anguish is pangs. Anguish is a lot of pain. Anguish is agony. Anguish is heightened grief and sorrow. These are vivid words that describe the death of his conviction and his feelings. And both words are preceded by strong adjectives to make it even stronger. It is great or weighty sorrow. It is unceasing or continual anguish. The truth is real. And the truth is causing within Paul this real pain in his heart. We see the greatness of his grief. Which then leads us to the greatness of his passion. He tells us in verse 1, with that overly strong emphasis, that what he's about to say is the truth. He tells us in verse 2, that this truth has caused him great sorrow and unceasing anguish. His feelings, his convictions are real and genuine and deep. But interestingly, as we get here to verse 3, he never comes right out and tells us directly what is the cause of 
of his anguish and sorrow. He only does so indirectly there in verse 3. Now, we can clearly understand what the truth is in verse 3, as he's exclaiming his great passion for his kinsmen. Verse 3 says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He is saying that if it were possible, he could wish that he himself were cut off from Christ if it meant the salvation of his brothers, his kinsmen, his fellow Jews. Do you see it? What is causing Paul's great sorrow and such unceasing anguish is the unbelief of the Jews in Jesus as their Messiah. Now he says that directly in Romans chapter 10 verse 1. The very first verse in Romans 10 tells us directly Paul's heart's desire. It says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You see, it's the widespread rejection of Christ by his fellow Jews that is crushing Paul's heart. Oh, how he longed for the salvation of his kinsmen. Well, now the grammar of verse 3 is very important. Paul doesn't actually wish himself to be accursed and cut off from Christ. He knows that's not possible. Everyone, individually, all of us, stand before God carrying the weight and responsibility of our own sin. No mere human can take it for you. But of course, there is one who can. The one and only God-man, Jesus Christ, only he can take our sin upon himself. Only he can take God's just judgment on our sin. Only he could be accursed, hanging on a tree, on the cross, enduring the wrath of God for the sins of mankind. Paul has no righteousness to give, only Christ. And Paul knows that very, very well. So he specifically says he could wish. He knows it's not possible, but the sentiment of could wishing accurately reflects how deep his burden is for the salvation of his kinsmen. One wrote, it was for the salvation of his fellow Jews that Paul expressed himself in hyperbole, saying he was willing even to forfeit his salvation if somehow that could save them from God's condemnation. No one, of course, knew better than Paul. That salvation is a believer's most precious treasure and that only Christ's sacrificial death has the power to save. Oh, but Paul's burden for his kinsmen was so real, so deep, that the best way he could express it was to compare it to being willing to relinquish his very own most precious salvation. To be willing to spend eternity in hell if somehow that would bring about his fellow Jews' salvation in Christ. Folks, that is passion. That is a passion for the lost. That is an amazing example to us. What an inspiration for us. The great passion of Paul for the salvation of the lost, for the salvation of his kinsmen. It's such a challenge for us. 
Two points of application. First, Paul's words here reflect God's heart. Think about this with me now. Paul's words here reflect God's heart. God not only felt this way, but he actually had the power to act on it, and he did. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And actively purposely, out of love, sent his son to be the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. All you have to do is look at the cross, see God's grace, see God's love, see God's son, the one and only atoning sacrifice for sin, for our sin. Romans 5, for while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, for us. For God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Salvation is secured. Eternal life is offered. Christ Jesus has died for us. You see, God not only felt the same way as Paul, but he actually had the power to act on it, and he did. And salvation is offered. Another point of application for us is for us as Christians. Paul's heart broke for his kinsmen. Paul was in great sorrow and in unceasing anguish for the salvation of his nation. Does great sorrow for the lost pervade your heart? Does unceasing anguish for our kinsmen's salvation reverberate in our hearts? Now these days we are living in are, are filled with heightened passions and with strong opinions and with fervent action. So let's just stop for a moment. Let's just pause and ponder for a moment. Let's reflect. Let's evaluate Let's look at Paul's heart. Let's look at God's heart. Let's look at our heart. Where is your great sorrow for the lost? Where is mine? Where is your unceasing anguish for your lost kinsmen, for your family, for your nation? Where is mine? See, these are deep, challenging questions for all of us. As a winter storm rolled over Birmingham, Alabama on January 28, 2014, Dr. Zenko Renke heard that a patient at Trinity Medical Center had taken a turn for the worse. 
The patient needed emergency surgery and no other surgeon was available. And the patient had a 90% chance of dying. Driving wasn't an option because of the snow and ice and emergency personnel were too busy to help him. So the 62-year-old doctor faced these brute facts and proceeded to take action. He put on a coat over his medical scrubs and he started walking six miles in the snow from Brookwood Medical Center to Trinity Medical Center. Along the way, he fell and rolled down the hill, but he got back up. He even helped a driver who was stuck in the snow. He finally arrived at Trinity, performed the surgery, and saved the patient's life. In a later press conference, uh, his efforts were praised. Dr. Zenki Renke uh, wondered what all the fuss was about. He said, it really wasn't that big of a deal. Any doctor would have done the same thing. He said, the patient was dying and that wasn't going to happen on my shift. But a hospital official said the doctor was just being modest. Keith Granger, Trinity Medical Center CEO, said, it wasn't just a walk in the park. Given the conditions, the temperature, the terrain, it's a remarkable physical feat and mental feat. And we have an individual alive today who would not be here if not for his efforts. We have an individual alive today who would not be here if not for his efforts. It's a great story about a great doctor who did whatever it took to help save the life of his patient. What about us, right? You see the application. How far are we willing to go? Where is our passion? Where is our commitment? Where is our sacrifice? Who can it be said of us In Christ and in Christ's plan, who can it be said of us in Christ that they wouldn't be spiritually alive today if not for our efforts? Now, I'm not saying this to heap guilt upon myself or to heap guilt upon you, but rather to help us to to be in tune with such a great salvation that we've been given so that So that we would so wish to see the great salvation that has been given to us go to others. And thus to end up like Paul to grow deeper in our sorrow and anguish for those who have rejected Christ. The application is clear and the challenge is great. So let me give you one practical step. One practical step you can take to reawaken your passion, to rekindle your heart and your fire. For the lost. Pray. Pray. There's no better place to start than to start in prayer. Oswald Chambers said, If I'm a Christian, I'm not set on saving my own skin, but on seeing that the salvation of God comes through me to others, and the great way is by intercession. By prayer. Pray. Pray for the lost. Pray for your lost kinsmen. Pray for your family. Pray for your heart for the lost. Pray for an opportunity to share your hope in Christ. 
In Colossians 4, 3 through 4, Paul says, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I once heard a preacher preaching on Colossians 4, and he gave the simple application outline of what to pray for. Pray for God to open a door of opportunity. Pray for God to open their heart to receive the word. And pray for God to open your mouth to speak of Christ. So to put it simply, pray for God to open the door, open their heart, open my mouth. Wow, our passion would grow. Just think of what... What would change in our lives if we regularly, daily, unceasingly prayed this simple prayer? See, today can be the start to rekindle your passion for the lost kinsmen in our lives through prayer. Simple. Open a door. Open their heart. Open my mouth. Well, Paul's great grief that led to Paul's great passion was infueled in part by the great privilege that God has given to the Jews. They were so blessed. Verses 4 and 5. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. What a, an amazing list of privileges, right? To the Jews belonged the adoption. God referred to Israel as his son. God says in Hosea 11.1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. In Deuteronomy 7, it says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it's not because you were more in number than any other, other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers. Adoption is theirs because God loved them. Theirs is the glory this refers to those times when the manifest presence of God was with them in those unique ways. Remember that very pillar of cloud that led them by the day, the pillar of fire that led them by night, leading the children of Israel in the Exodus throughout the wilderness wanderings. It is called in Exodus 16, the glory of God. And in Exodus 40, it talks about the glory of God filling the tabernacle in 1 Kings 8, it talks about the glory of God filling the temple. See, it was given to them the glory, the manifest presence of God to see with their very own eyes. Theirs is the covenants. God's great covenants with Abraham, with Moses, with David are theirs. The very covenants of God are their heritage. And God is so great in the promise of the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, and I will put my law within them, and I will write in I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Theirs is the giving of the law. They were given the very words of God to guide and direct them. And and all the worship and daily functions of life, they had the word of God to lead them, to bless them, words to teach them about God. To them was given the worship. The very presence of the tabernacle and the temple was a focal point of reminder of their access to God and of God's presence with them. The the sacred festivals, the sacrificial system, all gave them opportunities of worship to worship the one true God. Theirs is the promises. Oh, the great promises of God throughout the Old Testament. The very promise of the Messiah himself is as Peter describes them, his precious and very great promises. Theirs is the patriarchs. When God revealed himself to Moses at that burning bush, how did God describe himself? He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. All these great blessings, amazing blessings. But the last one tops them all. Theirs is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus was a Jew. The second person of the Trinity came to earth incarnating in human flesh as part of the Jewish race. And to emphasize Just how awesomely great this greatest blessing of all is. Paul clearly points out the fact of the deity of Christ. Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. As the Nicene Creed says of Jesus, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Jesus, the Christ The Messiah's human ancestry is theirs, Jewish, Jesus. The supreme blessing of the people of Israel. And yet, what? They rejected him. God, the Father, gave the very best gift of all. God, the Son, incarnate. In their heritage, privilege after privilege after privilege, culminating with the greatest of all in Jesus Christ. And yet, they rejected him. Oh, how Paul's heart grieved with unbelief. Oh, how God's heart grieved their unbelief. John 1, 11 through 12 says, He came to his own, 
and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So how about you? Where are you? See, so many of us have been so blessed by God, right? So many of us have been given great privilege upon great privilege to know God. Amazing great things like a Bible, like church, like Christian parents and Christian friends and Bible studies and kids ministries and VBS and teen ministries and Christian radio and books and on and on and on. So many of us have been given such great privileges, such great opportunities to know Christ, to serve Christ, to follow Christ, to confess him as our Messiah, as our Lord and Savior. And by the grace of God, many have. Many have received this greatest blessing ever, Jesus Christ. But the question comes today to you. Have you received that greatest blessing? Maybe you're like many of the Jews in Paul's day, having received all these blessings, but yet still refusing to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Messiah. Well, today can be your day to come to Christ. No matter what privilege you've had or or never had, Jesus is offering you salvation today. So today, do not harden your heart. Do not say, I'm going to deal with that later. Today is the day of salvation. Today, open your heart to the reality of Jesus, his substitutionary death for your sins. Today, receive him, believe in his name, and become a child of God. Today, open your heart and follow the ABCs. Admit A. Admit your sins. Admit that you can't earn God's grace. Be honest about the predicament that you are in because of your sins. B. Believe Jesus. Believe Jesus is who he said he is. Believe Jesus did what he did, dying and rising again for your salvation. And see, confess. Confess Jesus. Confess him as your Lord and Savior. A, B, C. Let's pray together. Father, now we thank you so much that we've come under your word, this amazing heart of Paul that challenges us in such amazing ways as Christians. May we heed the challenge of prayer. May we pray daily, regularly, that you would give us a heart like Paul for our lost kinsmen. But Lord, I pray now especially that there might be one here There might be some even listening online right now that are coming grips with the fact that they've had these privileges, but they've never put their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, today is your day of salvation. Now, from your own heart, in your own words, in your own conversation with God, do the ABCs. Admit your sin. Be honest. 
and talk with him. Believe in Jesus. Believe that all that he has done on the cross was for you and rose again for you, securing salvation for you. And then see in your own words, just confess him as your Lord. Confess him as your Savior. Confess him as the leader of your life. Confess him as the forgiver of your sins. Confess him today. Lord, now in these moments of communion, may we reflect and rejoice in Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.